What's up? What's up? Welcome to another episode of Art Pays Me. This week we have Rebecca Thomas, who is an activist, a poet, author, and former poet laureate of Halifax. We had an incredible conversation about her work raising awareness for indigenous issues in this region, her creative journey, how establishing credibility as an artist can help you justify your rates. We also talked about loving this land that we know as Canada while not ignoring the ways that it can be improved. Uh, We talk about acknowledging our privilege. We get into um, how, like for me, I found it challenging telling stories that are not mine. And we talk about how maybe that can be cultural appropriation. And uh, I had to really look at myself in the mirror in, in that moment. And uh, we also talked about the problems with cancel culture. Before we get into the episode, I want to give a shout out to Seth Glasgow, the Programming and Outreach Director at CKDU. He had myself, Andrew from Dog Island Podcast, and Lindsay from the Momgasm Podcast on uh, his show to talk about our journey as podcasters and we got into some of the challenges and some of the the great things about it and we gave some advice to people who might be considering podcasts and it was a great great uh fun thing to do uh really enjoyed connecting with uh with andrew and uh with Lindsay and with seth and um i think i got some new industry buddies so make sure you, I'll, you know, hopefully I'll be linking to that kind of thing when it pops up on my social medias. And uh, also, let's not forget, Art Pays Me Live is coming up September 24th at the Foggy Goggle at 6 p.m. Tickets are $10. They're only available in advance on eventbrite.com. And uh, you just... Look up that good old Art Pays Me, and actually presented by um, East Coast Creative Collective. Let's not forget that. And um, yeah, we'll have Elena Camille, illustrator extraordinaire, Jordan Moore, illustrator, clothing, t-shirt type dude. I don't know how he he views himself in that area, actually, so we'll, I'm sure we'll dig into that in the interview. Anyway, I look forward to seeing y'all out there. Now let's get into this show. What up, artists? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm the creative director and founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. This is the Art Pays Me podcast, and I'm passionate about finding ways that people like you and me can make a living for ourselves off of our creativity. And, you know, maybe we can make the world a better place at the same time. Let's get into it. Okay, so welcome to the Art Pays Me podcast. I have Rebecca Thomas on today. And um, I just, I've already apologized too many times, but we scheduled this another time while I was away. (laughs) Uh, I, I tried, I got this new fancy calendar system and... It's supposed to tell me when I have free spots. And it picked a free spot, but I happen to be out of province. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so um, it didn't work the way I intended. 
and uh, new technology takes some some finessing. I missed an interview today that I was supposed to show up for, oh. um, like a media interview, and the okay. person didn't have my phone number to call me, so they sent me a a message, a DM message on Twitter, and I totally missed it because I was engrossed in what I was doing at work, and so I had to do my whole. Okay. I'm very sorry. This was very uh, unprofessional of me. I I don't want to waste your time. Can we reschedule it? Right. <laughs> so so long story. So I should I should learn to forgive myself. <laughs> yeah, if it's if it's a consistent pattern, a consistent right? Pattern, but if it's like well, something that it's every once in a while, it's okay. <laughs> right. Okay. So we got that out of the way. Um, I can't remember if I have any shoutouts this week, so I'll uh, quote that for later. But Rebecca, what is it that you do? Ooh, do you want the the thing that I do that pays my bills, or do you want the thing that I do that um, gets me all excited, slash really angry, slash really tired? It's all kind of jumbled together anyway. Typically, yeah, you know what? Typically, I would say the the latter. However, (laughs) I believe that they both inform each other. Yeah. So currently, I am a senior consultant for diversity inclusion for the province. Um, I do lots of work where it's anything from um, strategy development for DNI to training to uh, template and tool development, um, a whole myriad of things, which is really exciting because I get to try to enact change in the things that I love and care deeply about, and I get paid to do it, which hey. is really cool. Um, it's not without its frustrations. It's not without its challenges. Um, um, inertia in an organization is a really powerful force, yes. and so you've got to try to kind of tilt the ship or whatever, however that metaphor goes, which can be kind of challenging. Um, but it links really nicely with the work that I've been doing for a really long time as um, as a writer and as a speaker, um, trying to um, kind of raise the prominence of Indigenous issues here in Halifax, in Jibuktuk, in Nova Scotia, Miyamagi, in, in this kind of area. So it's yeah. nice that my expertise and my passions are starting to, to come together. Do you do you have a team like working with you, or are you a solo? Uh, I have a team. I am part of a, a trio at the moment. I have two other fabulous uh, consultants that I work with. They're really, um, it's really great. We're a really diverse team. Okay. So I work with a man from Nigeria and I work with a woman from St. Lucia. Okay. Uh, and we will hopefully be getting a leader some point in time because we had my previous uh, director retired and she was a fabulous, fabulous person and it was a huge loss, but she left us with so much wisdom and so much experience. Right. So, uh, you know, we're going to get the band back together soon. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, like, with that topic, I was just uh, doing my usual internet stuff today mm-hmm. and the topic came up about how the U.S. isn't necessarily acknowledging its Past. Mm. Do you feel like Canada's doing a better job in doing that? Uh, I think I think they're doing a, a pretty good job of acknowledging it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, we had um, the grand apology yeah. from the then Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Um, we had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission come through and do all of their work. We had the report done on. Uh, uh, after the inquiry for missing and murdered Indigenous women, yeah. right? So we've done a really good job at acknowledging a lot of the stuff that's happened in the past. But I think where um, Canada sometimes 
lags behind, or shouldn't I say lag behind, but where Canada's blind spots are or soft spots are, the action piece, okay. right? Because the thing is, is when you have a government that can last, you know, maybe four years, right? And then you have changeover and you have campaigning and you have all these sorts of things. Um, reconciliation isn't something that like one um, political entity or party can get done in a term. For sure. This is something that's going to take generations of healing to happen. Yeah. And so with that, you need to have consistency and that consistent application and that consistent um, sense of empathy and caring and drive to continuously work away at it. But when you have parties change over back and forth, um, when you have people who don't acknowledge their privilege, which I think that Trudeau does a lot of that. Mm. I think he doesn't acknowledge his privilege. You know, the, the Montreal airport's named after his father, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he's, you know, I'm the everyday guy. I was a teacher. I'm going to roll up my sleeves too. Right. Um, that that can create a scenario where it's not necessarily productive because you have one one side saying, like, look at how great I am, and the other side saying, well, you're not that great, and then you start kind of getting into these defensive spirals. Yeah. When in reality, I think we need to look at what the objective is, and the objective is to work towards reconciliation in a way that's meaningful for Indigenous people and, and is accessible for non-Indigenous people to know what to do. Yeah, man, you really nailed <laughs> that. <laughs> Wow, because it, it's it's like a such a it's a delicate thing. Like on one hand, you're like offending people for simply looking for equality, mm-hmm. but yet it shouldn't be offensive at at all. Um, yeah. So where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in New Brunswick. I grew up in Riverview, New Brunswick, um, just outside of it, actually, in a place called Lower Coverdale, which is a strip of highway, to Riverview, which is across the water from Moncton. That's how I tend to explain it to people. Okay. I grew up in a very white town. Uh Um, I went to a high school of 1,200 students, and there was five or six kids of color Uh out of the entire school. And um, me and my sister were the only indigenous students or the only kind of like visibly or known indigenous students. And I wouldn't even say that I'm uh, a person of color, but a person of colorish, mm. maybe in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so the, the diversity, the visible diversity within our school was, was very lacking. And it created this very strange kind of experience of growing up and being like, am, am I? Like, <laughs> right? Because right. I didn't see people around me. What I had access to were things like Pocahontas and, you know, media portrayals of indigenous people. And I go, well, that's not me. So I must not be indigenous. I must not mm-hmm. be native. I must not be Mi'kmaq or, you know, so on and so forth. And so that yeah. created a really weird experience for me. And you didn't really have, like, much community outside of, like... No, I didn't grow up. My dad uh, and my mom separated when I was really young. My dad struggled with addictions really badly for a long, long part of my life. Um, And so because of that, he would be in and out of my life here and there, here and there, here and there. And when he would come, he would try his best. Um, But even he didn't know necessarily what was Mi'kmaq because he went to residential school when he was a young boy. Right. Right? So he would give us things like uh, like dream catchers or foxtails or mystery bags or leathers and feathers and like uh, creation story books. But those creation stories uh, weren't necessarily Mi'kmaq, right? They came from other nations. And so I kind of got this like pan-indigenous upbringing of what it meant to be an indigenous person and it was only later on did I start to kind of drill down into Mi'kmaq history and Mi'kmaq culture and understand what it meant to be a Mi'kmaq woman. Interesting. I feel like that's basically the majority of the African population. Mm. 
And that's a really good point because, you know, um, one of my, col- like my colleague who's from Nigeria, he says that when he comes to Canada, he has this kind of, people say, oh, well, kente cloth. But it's like, well, actually, that pattern that you use is very specific to, like, a specific part yeah. of Ghana or Nigeria or whatever. So there is that kind of, this pan-African experience because, again, like, if you don't have anyone to teach you and you don't know where you come from, yeah. it can create this weird identity crisis where you're like, I know I'm something and, and here's a smattering of it's what I could be. Like <laughs> but I don't know which one is actually me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My brother and I. Well, my brother he did um, that DNA ancestry stuff and started to figure out like where he came from, like mm-hmm. that way. So it's like I think I might do it. Even though technically he should be the same, but apparently we're not. Um, yeah. So it makes me like okay. Then I can figure out what my actual culture is. Yeah, <laughs> and get an idea of like, because like placemaking and identity is so rooted in territory and space yeah. that if you don't know what space you come from or territory you come from, it can be a really difficult way to, where do you put your roots? Yeah. Where do you put your feet? Yeah, yeah. I almost came to the, recently anyway, I came to terms with, if I say never find out what my culture is, mm. that I'm okay with creating my own mm. and saying, this is where I start from zero and go forward. Yeah, but experience is such an important part too of like how you grow up. And so when we think about um, like the history of African Nova Scotia and the settlement of Nova Scotia, like yeah. there's some really strong roots sure. here. Like African Nova Scotian is its own unique heritage group because of that, right? Yep. And so like like that's a really cool thing that's so unique to this territory and to this this part of the world. And I think that's something that it deserves like so much merit and celebration. Yes, for sure. Yeah. yeah so, what were you, um, were you like as a child? I was very precocious. <laughs> uh, I I couldn't be told what to do. Um, I was very independent. Okay. Um, partly, I think, because I grew up in a bit of like a neglectful way. Like okay. uh, my mom was incredibly busy. She worked really hard. She worked a lot. My dad wasn't around. Yeah. And then when my stepdad came in the picture, he wasn't really great at knowing how to interact with us. Yeah. Um, Cause he loved my mom. And yes, I think he loved us by default, but he didn't know how. He wasn't like a kid person. No. And, and he just was, he just, I don't think he had the tools or the skill set yeah. to know how to like kind of support and flourish like these kind, like like two young girls who are just very like, because I have an older sister, um, who are just you know we knew what we wanted to do and we, we and we would do these things yeah. and that often would lead to tension in our household because we couldn't necessarily be tamed. But my grandfather is uh, was my saving was my saving grace. Um, I didn't grow up very safe um, in a lot of ways, and my grandfather's home was the place that I was safe and I could relax and I could be myself. Um, I have uh, a big lilac racing tattooed on the back of my arm um, because my grandfather's house had these massive lilac bushes in front and he put vases everywhere of them yeah. in the spring. And, um, and so that was something that I think really grounded me right. because he was the consistent one. He was the one that showed kindness and he was gentle and he gave praise and he always remembered me on my birthday. Like my parents forgot my birthday all the time, right. you know, those things. And so... I think I wouldn't be as compassionate or as soft as I am without my grandfather's influence. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Do you find, like, were you always creative or did you find, I, I had this recent conversation about sometimes creativity is born 
when you're going through those tough times? Mm. Or were you like more creative when you were in that safe space? I was very adventurous. So I think my creativity maybe came from ways that I wanted to entertain myself. Um, so I would go out, we grew like my mom's house was out in the country and there was a stream that was like three backyards over down to like the Petakodiak river, heaps of land. And I would go down to the stream and for hours I would find like branch and sticks and things like that. And I would build a bridge to go across it. And I'm not just like talking about like laying sticks down. Like I'm, I put structure and planning into this <laughs> and I try to make railings for it and that wow. sort of stuff. And I, and I found like that, that was really like that was a fun kind of creative outlet in that way. Um, I read a lot. I okay. read lots of books. I had a very wild imagination, um, and you know, made make believe all the time. I used to like to build things. I really loved cooking, and so a lot of creativity came from that. Um, I learned to cook at a necessity because my mom right. was a garbage cook, <laughs> and nobody else was around to go. My grandfather cooked a lot, so I learned okay. to cook in his kitchen. But at a very young age, I would start to make food and be like, "Ooh, this smells good. And, mm, this tastes good. Let's let's try this out." Um. So my creativity came out in many ways, um, and it wasn't until um, I was much older. Uh, and when I was actually getting married, did my friend show me that a poem I had written when I was a teenager and had given to her, did I realize that, wow, I was writing as a teenager. I completely forgot about that. So you that. were an adult when you started to really embrace your Absolutely. creative side. Yeah. Wow. That I, I, I did theater as a kid. So okay. there was that. Like, I wow. love to perform, but I also joke, my dad has six kids, um, and then I have steps and halves and all those sorts of things. So I'm child number five of eight. Like, I did um. anything to get noticed. Pay attention to me. Like, remember <laughs> me. Don't forget me. So I was a performer from a very young age. Got you. But started feeling okay in writing and performing my own work and me and owning my identity and all of my insecurities that go along with it. That yeah. came when I was much older. Ah, uh, okay. Mm. Interesting. Um, so you are former poet laureate of Halifax. Correct. What does that even mean? Okay, so I didn't even know what the poet laureate was when I applied <laughs> for the position. But my dad always said, apply for jobs even if you don't know if you're qualified for them. Um, I had done a bit of uh, poetry and performed um, in various kind of poetry slams and, and that sort of stuff and I had won a couple of competitions and ended up taking uh, our teams to various places in Canada to perform and then from there I ended up doing independent performing pieces those sorts yeah. of things and uh, I applied um, Elle Jones was the previous poet laureate and so she had sent me a message saying hey my term's wrapping up here's the application give it a go I think you would be a good fit mm. and so I used it as an opportunity to learn how to do an artist resume because I'd never done one before I've always done CVs for jobs sure. um, so I did that and I had to write a statement of intent and, and this sort of stuff and I ended up getting shortlisted and brought in for an interview. It was a very intimidating process. There was like 10 people at the interview panel and I had to perform two poems and answer a bunch of questions. And two weeks later, I got the call saying that I got the position. Wow. And it was like, it's just bam, bam. And then from there, my career has, it's, it's been exponential. Like, it's not been this kind of slow thing. It's been like, the amount of people who have come out of the of the, the world to offer me things, I am I am so lucky that I I know so many artists who struggle and struggle and struggle, and the work that I do is hard because I have to talk about a lot of things that people don't necessarily agree with or understand. But as for 
like access and doing things, I've been blessed with so much opportunity. Crazy. So that's like, it's through the government of Halifax? Um, it was through the municipality. The municipality. So it was, a, yeah. it was a sponsored position. It was for two years. And it was really kind of like the launching pad. Because as soon as you put Poet Laureate next to your name, when you apply for any kind of position or someone's looking for you to speak, that title gives me like clout and credibility and all of this sort of stuff. Um, like, and that goes to show like privilege and power and how important titles are and, and, and that sort of thing. Accessibility. Yeah. And so the fact that I had Poet Laureate after my name, all of a sudden people were like, oh, she must be good. She must be worth the money she's asking. She must be worth it, you know? And, and, and that was, that was the beginning, I think, or the really launching pad of my, my career. Interesting. Like I've been following you for years, mostly because I was like, oh, this badass is like <laughs> saying something about <laughs> something, <laughs> and I'm like, yes, yes, say it, say it, because we need more. Of those. We just we need more of those voices out there. People mm-hmm. just being unapologetic mm. and just saying like, <laughs> saying, telling it like it is. I uh, appreciate it. Um, so you did uh, a poem called. How to be a good Canadian? Yeah. All right, um, um, what good Canadians what do? What good Canadians do? Yes. So. Yes. I'm an immigrant. Yes. And you know, in recent years, I've I've started to just become really un- uncomfortable with celebrating Canada Day, to mm-hmm. be honest. Mm-hmm. And Thanksgiving and holidays like that. My, so from Bermuda, like we have we celebrate American holidays. Yep. Sort of unofficially. Yep. Um, Because my mom works for an American company. So, Mm -hmm. like, things like that come up, and I'm like, I don't know how to feel. Like, like, everyone's happy around me. Um, I have indigenous friends, and I don't know how to feel. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I think think we can celebrate Canada eventually. Mm -hmm. I think that we can be proud of the things that we have that so many other countries don't universal health care with all of its problems I can get sick go to the hospital and leave and not be saddled with tens of thousands of dollars worth of bills I think that's something that we should be quite proud of because that's not the way it is in many 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 places in the world Um, I think that um, for the most part we have a decent quality of life Mm -hmm. Um, you know asterisks scroll down (laughs) look at the footnotes unless you're indigenous you're living in a rural community you know you're living on reserve you don't have clean drinking water so I think there's a lot to go my um, issue with celebrating Canada Day is that we celebrate Canada without acknowledging its flaws uh-huh. We go, we're so great, we're so polite, hockey and double-doubles, la-la-la-la-la. And we don't take the time to be humble and to acknowledge our flaws. We're not there. We're not done. The cake's not baked, right? There's still so much work to be done. And so when I see people celebrating Canada Day unapologetically, like, proud, patriotic, and the second you say, well, hey, what about? there are these things that we still need to work on, then when they get defensive, that's where I get kind of cranky. Saying, no, like there are great things about living here. When I think of being a woman and being indigenous and, and, and when I think about where I could have been born in the world, Canada's not so bad of a place yeah. to live, right? But just because we're not as shitty as another country 
doesn't mean that we're the best and doesn't mean that we can improve. Sure, so I don't sure. think we should be comparing ourselves to other countries. It's that same, I don't know about you, but when I was young and I would be eating supper and I didn't want to finish my, my meal, my mom would be like, well, you know, there are starving kids in, insert Africa. this country, Maybe this Africa. India, Africa, whatever. <laughs> so you should eat your food and you should be grateful. Yeah. And it's like, well, you're not listening to me. I'm telling you that my stomach hurts or that I'm full. Um, you're not listening. And so I think that's the part with Canada Day is that we talk, we talk ourselves up. But then when we try to have a conversation, a lot of Canadians aren't listening, and that becomes really frustrating. Yeah. Um, I, I, a lot of my art recently has kind of gone along those lines, too, because it's... I did a, a shirt called, um, our, our experience is valid, we will not be gaslit. And it's, it's around that whole thing of like people just being like, you should be happy you're here. You should be grateful that you're in this situation. I'm like, absolutely am. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that this place is perfect. It doesn't mean that we're beyond reproach. Nobody is perfect. And everybody can be criticized. Yeah. And it's like if you accidentally cut me and I have to get 10 stitches, and then you say, well, you should be grateful. You don't have to get 200 stitches. Exactly. And it's like, are we not going to talk about how you cut me here? Right. Exactly. <laughs> sure. I'm happy that I still have my, I haven't died. I still have my, my limbs are still attached to my body, but I'm still in pain. Yeah. And it's important for you to acknowledge what you've done. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that I think becomes my biggest issue that I, inherently I don't think Canada is a bad place, but I think it's got an ego problem. <laughs> I'm finding my talk. Yeah. What does that mean? So, um, Rita Jo uh, was a Mi'kmaq poet. I would consider her to be the Mi'kmaq poet laureate. Like, I think that she was like she that. was incredible and, and brave and started talking about her experiences in residential school. Yeah. Like, long before, like, the truth and reconciliation thing happened. Long before. She died before uh, the apology happened. Um, I believe she died before, right around there when the apology happened. And so she wrote this poem called I Lost My Talk. It's okay. a very, very short poem. And she has lines in it that's like, I think like you, I speak like you. Um, another line of like, let me find my talk so I can teach you about me. Yeah. Right? Um, and so Nimbus Publishing got the rights to turn that into a children's book um, about the experience of her going to residential school and got um, this beautiful... Um, illustrations done by Pauline. Oh, I'm missing her last name here. I'll see if I can remember it later. But um, she did these gorgeous um, illustrations about it and then Nimbus approached me and said, well, we would really love for you to um, do the the kind of the echo to that, like the response piece to that about finding my talk. Because you're seeing so many young indigenous people reclaiming culture and relearning language. Um, which is a beautiful thing to see because in spite of residential schools and the 60s scoop and like legislation and the Indian Act and all this sort of stuff, indigenous peoples are still here. They're still speaking our languages. We're still practicing our culture. Um, And so they said, we'd love you to do the response to this. So I wrote this poem about finding my talk, like refinding my culture and kind of going through this process of figuring it out and it being awkward and loving my nieces and nephews even though they're mixed race and all this sort of stuff and that they're they're beautiful in all their, their parts and pieces and um, and and see my work done by the same artist as an echo to Rita Joe's work, work that I have read and I have admired for years, is it still doesn't feel very real. It would be, you know, if you idolized, you know, a director or an actor and then all of a sudden you realized or somebody approached you to work with them yeah. to, like, uphold their legacy, 
Oh, such an honor. It was such an honor. Cool. Yeah, I did some final approving of what things look like uh, recently, and it, it, it gives me like goosebumps. It's, it's, it's really, really beautiful. That's, that's great. Um, yeah, I didn't realize it was that significant for you. Um, so that's, that's cool that you had that almost full circle moment, but you're still young, so it's, like, I hate to say it like that, but it's, <laughs> it's weird, like, it, but it's good. Um, how was the like, publishing process like? Is that challenging? Um, I don't think so. I've had some, I've, I've worked with publishers. I have a couple of books done up and coming out yeah. over the next couple of years and uh, publishers are very patient with me because I get 10,000 different emails and direct messages through Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and my email and all of these things and so I definitely lose track of things and so they've been so very uh, accommodating to that I always put as a caveat whenever I agree to any kind of speaking gig or contract I say email me, call me, text me as many times in a row as you need for me to respond to you because I'm it's not that I'm ignoring you or I'm upset, I just don't remember Like I'm, I've, I've reached capacity and so the publishing yeah. folks that I have have been working with have been really great at like mm, reining me in good. and wrangling me and I'm always apologetic yeah. I'm always like, I'm so sorry, thank you for putting up with me I really appreciate it and I think that making me I don't know endearing myself to folks I think helps that process uh, but that being said other folks they ask me to do free things all the time and it's like wait you're a you're a huge company or an organization you guys have tons of money and you and you want me to do this for free no thank you um, and I won't refer them to anybody because I don't want them to treat my community members that's, that same way absolutely let's dig into that so you said you got some more credibility once you hit yes you yeah. got that on your name uh how was it before in terms of getting approached for free or work below what you would consider fair compensation? And compared to now, you're still getting approached for free work. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't do too much speaking before the Poet Laureate thing, um, but oftentimes it was we have this event and you have this great opportunity, exposure. There's a really great comic that says, you know, oh, you know, this, this, has, this event has great exposure. And the person's like, oh, great, that's perfect. My rent is 800 exposures, <laughs> right? <laughs> or they say, like, you know, the artist died from exposure, right? right? So there's also, like, that kind of thing. Um, and it was, uh, it was just frustrating, but at the same time, I didn't know what I was worth. I was like, oh, my gosh, you want me to... You're going to give me $100 to come talk? Wow, yeah. right? So I thought that was so great. And then when I started talking to, uh, to Elle and I asked her some advice and she goes, you're worth, you're worth it. Like you set a price and if they don't want to pay that, that's fine. say no thank you, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that becomes a really hard place for artists who don't have other means to support themselves. So I have a salaried position that has vacation pay and health benefits. I can afford to say no thank you, but if somebody is really counting on that $150 to make their rent or to buy their groceries or to pay their cell phone bill, then it can be really easy for organizations to exploit artists, especially young artists who, yes. who are really trying to make a name for themselves and are trying to hone their craft so they need to practice more. And I just think this whole, well, you got to pay your dues is bullshit. I yeah. don't think that that's fair. I think that that's born out of a history and a society where people don't want to pay what you're worth until you think 
until they think you're worth it. And I don't. I tell all of the young folks, I'm like, set your price. If yeah. you can afford it, if you can, and if you can afford to say no, say no. If they don't want to pay it, right. I won't name. I won't name names, but I was approached by a international multi-billion-dollar company to do something. I gave them a speaking fee of five thousand dollars plus accommodations, and they said no. <laughs> they make billions of dollars a year, and they couldn't pay and me five grand. Five thousand dollars is nothing. <laughs> yeah. For, like they will drop that on Facebook ads. <laughs> oh, not e- like like they'll drop that kind of money to impress a client for lunch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And so I was, I was, and I said, great, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll see you never. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate it. I like that. Um, I'm, I'm starting to get into the speaking world mm-hmm. and I don't feel, I feel like a fraud right now because I'm not, that's not my first Imposter thing. syndrome. The oh, imposter yes. Imposter syndrome. Absolutely. So, like the idea of saying, I'll do it only if you pay me X is like it's it's a challenge for me at this point yeah but I know it's something that has to happen because when I'm not doing what I'm doing to speak I'm I should be it should be I'm bringing value well that's the thing is that people they'll see oh well you know you came and you spoke and you did something for 45 minutes you want me to pay you $5,000 for 45 yeah. minutes and that's not what they're paying for. They're paying for the hours of failures. They're paying for all of the projects. They're paying for the education. They're paying for um, all of what has led up to that really beautifully honed and crafted piece, mm-hmm. right? There's hundreds of hours that go into something like that. For sure. um, that's what they're paying for. Yeah. They're not just paying for 45 minutes of your time. Yes. And so I think individuals and, and I think, you know, speakers and artists need to value that time as well, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, the... I have, for every poem that I put out there, I probably have like a dozen poems that aren't finished or don't see the light of day or that I don't think are good, um, if not more. And and they're paying for those poems too yes. because I have to get those out and practice on those before I get to something that I think is worthwhile. Yeah. How do you feel about the other side of it where maybe you get approached by an organization from your community and they just legit can't afford it but they still feel like they would like to have your voice or maybe they can afford but they're doing the same thing but they're saying but well, we want to elevate voices in our community but you know they have the money but they, they still don't <laughs> um, well if I have a soft spot for my community um, so if whether it be the Friendship Center or whether, whether it be like one of the, the reserves around here that asked me to come do something, I'll be like, yeah, yeah. I'm done. I'll see you there. I'm right. so excited. Um, especially if there's like youth involved. I have a huge soft spot for that. Gotcha. So I did some work with Sabag Nagate uh, with their youth, uh, and they wanted me to call in, and all of the kids wanted to ask, take turns asking me a question. Yeah. Uh, and I talked about you know being paid what you're worth, and the, the organizer I was like, oh, we're so sorry, we didn't pay you. And I said, no, no, not at all. Because, you know, when you start becoming, when you, if you can afford it, you get to pick and choose what makes you happy. And right now I have like a handful of Mi'kmaq youth who are asking me questions about their art. Um, mm-hmm. Like that's payment enough for me. Yeah. Like I get so much value out of that. So um, if it's community, like, yeah. It, I'm, like I said, my community's um, Lennox Island PEI and my great-grandfather, Michael Thomas was a runner. They, there was a statue of him in Stratford PEI. Oh. They, um, 
they have a run every year, the Michael Thomas race. They don't pay me anything to go, but I like, I'm also, you know, the only living descendant in this part of the world. So I go and I pay for my own gas and I pay for my hotel rooms because I want to go and show up and see my community right. and run in the race and, and take that pride. Cool. Right. I do a little poem for them usually. And I do it all on my own dime because I believe in it and I can afford to do it. So right. I will. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. I'm kind of the same way. Um, Every now and then, well, I had a I had a situation come up that I was like, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Generally speaking, I'm saying you gotta um, trust your gut. You have sure. to. It's like yeah. It's yeah. like sometimes something inside you just gotta let you know this is this is fine. Bang, no yeah. question. Um, so one thing that I've experienced, like I said like being an immigrant and dealing and then learning like as I've lived here over the years about the different challenges that um, like indigenous communities have faced. Like, I recently did a design that it had unceded territory on it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, writing overseas, like, superimposed over Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. So I do like, a lot of everyone is doing, and clothing brands are doing like the pro Nova Scotia things and selling well. I'm yeah. doing the like anti Nova Scotia thing. <laughs> There's a niche market getting, for that. And getting hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> I have gotten some pretty intense hate mail. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a very good business. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something that you have to like negotiate too because like a lot of people have a lot of privilege. I have a lot of privilege, mm-hmm. right? Like I acknowledge that. I grew up with a, a mom who had a really great job. She was a physician, so I never went hungry, and I got to be in whatever sport I wanted. So I had a lot of like economic privilege yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, but there's definitely a lot of like I didn't have access to culture, I didn't have access to community, and so I feel like I missed out on a lot of that. But with all of that experience and understanding why I didn't get to experience that, like that anger and that pain and that frustration is certainly there. So when I see a, a t-shirt that has like, you know, like a province or the country flipped upside down or what have you, I'm like, oh yeah, I, like I like that because that's something that I can relate to. I don't relate to things like East Coast lifestyle and I don't relate to that kind of New Scotland or something like right. that. Like I don't, that's not something that I relate to because that that is the reason I don't speak Mi'kmaq <laughs> because this is New Scotland right instead of Mi'kmaq right? right and so that's where um, so when I see stuff like that it's I that think tension. yeah yeah and that's kind of where that inspiration came from where my conflict is with it is sometimes I I feel like it's not my place to do mm. so that's where my conflict is why do you feel that way I feel like it like it's 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 because I'm not from that community Mm -hmm. I feel like it would feel more authentic if it came from that community however I consider myself an ally Mm. so and and as an artist it's what was in me it was screaming to get out Mm -hmm. so I put it out um, that's, that's a hard line to walk because I think you want to be careful to not tell stories that aren't yours. Yeah. Because I can't tell a story of what it's like to be like a black male immigrant coming to Canada exactly. from the Caribbean. So I'm not going to try right. to tell that story. Um, I will be your ally. I will pass you the mic if I have the platform. I will do that piece. Um, and, and as for like that art piece that's coming out, like... 
yeah, there's lots of pieces of art and poetry that I write in solidarity, but I don't necessarily put them out there publicly because they're not my stories to tell. Right, and that's where the that's where I'm struggling. Yeah. So you know, is there an opportunity for you to take the proceeds specifically from that shirt and donate them to a community? Is there an opportunity to collaborate with an a Mi'kmaq artist on like a new line? So it's like, okay, well, we're gonna pull these old, we're gonna take all the proceeds from this old line, we're gonna give them to like the Friendship Center, the youth group, or what have you, and then we're gonna I'm gonna do a cool collaboration with an indigenous uh, yeah. artist, and so you kind of get that 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 satisfaction um, for being for. For, for doing good allyship in that way, you're supporting community. You're maybe assuaging some guilt, yeah, yeah, <laughs> assuaging seriously. some guilt in that way. And so there are opportunities where you can work with folks and satisfy that artistic need and not kind of cross into that um, world of appropriation and misrepresentation. Yeah, that's and that's where I'm scared of. Mm. So like, what I ended up doing was like saying that I would donate proceeds to Alton Gas um, stuff, but I don't know, like, I'm not connected enough to the community to know what is the correct route to give money to, or, so it's that's, that's stuff like that where it made me almost get to a point where it's like, I feel like just pulling it and mm. just saying, stepping back. Or those can be things that you donate, right? Like, you know, connect to the community and say, like, hey, you, like, I don't know if it's still running at the Friendship Now, but there used to be the Get Booth Youth Center, oh, right? Okay. And so it's like, oh, like, I got all these t-shirts and, like, I got some angsty, angsty dip teenagers who were probably loved to wear this right, stuff, right? right? So, like, are there opportunities that you can kind of um, not waste? And, and so there's, like, really, there's other kind of things that you can do. They don't necessarily That's have true. to be. Yeah. yeah, like, so what are some... Like, yeah. if you feel bad, if you feel like you may have done a misstep, then where are, where are your opportunities to maybe take a step in the right direction? Mm-hmm. Um, I find that I don't agree with the politics of, well, in the activist community or whatever, like, you mess up, you're blacklisted for life. Mm-hmm. I don't like that because, you know, I was talking with one of my friends, and it's like, if Ilnu people never spoke to another Ilnu person who hurt them, we wouldn't talk to any of us. Well, exactly. Because, you know, we come from communities that are so full of trauma and hurt people, hurt people, hurt people, yeah, hurt people, right, and all this sort right. of stuff. And, like, my dad, when he was, he's been sober now for 19 years, and we're very proud of him, but when he was still drinking, and even when he's not sober, but he was acting out in other ways, he hurt us, and he hurt his kids, and he hurt, you know, the women in his life. And if I were to say, well, you're done. I would never have a relationship with my father. I wouldn't have a relationship with my sister. I wouldn't have a relationship with my community. There are people who wouldn't have relationships with me because I've hurt people because of sure. I'm not understanding what I'm doing and I'm acting out and I'm doing bad things and I'm making terrible decisions because of my upbringing. And I think that people have a right to to change and to get better. And what's the what's the onus to change if you don't have a community waiting for you when you get back? Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I sometimes I I, I want, like I maybe because I spend too much time on Twitter and the the echo chamber, mm. <laughs> but like I question sometimes what we're looking for when uh, we are asking for social change because when I see an organization maybe take a step in the right direction or a person take a step, we often meet that with criticism anyway. So it's hard, but then you just never know whether they're doing it for genuine reasons or not. So it's <laughs> and that's that's really muddy, especially when you have like these like the cynicism that kind of is is built into us when you see like 
Coca-Cola doing all of these things, and it's like, ooh, you yeah. also, like, people yeah. who try to unionize in South America, you had murdered, so, like, ooh, Coca-Cola, yeah, I don't know how I feel about you, yeah. right? So, certainly that um, that cynicism that gets built in is, is valid and legitimate mm-hmm. and things like that, but I'm thinking about, like, how if we're all products of our upbringing and if we were brought up with privilege with our blinders on and our rose-colored glasses, that if you work hard enough, opportunity will present itself. Um, if all of a sudden you have a reckoning and you realize that that's not how the world is, I think it's important that people go, like, I'm proud of you for changing. Um, not like, oh, it must be so nice to have never had to think about that for your whole life. Yeah. Like, I don't think that that's going to be really productive. No. And I think that... I don't know. Certainly there are some people who do things that are so heinous that maybe they can't come back into community. Mm. But notions of punishment and retribution, that's not our way as Indigenous people. Mm. Like, people getting shunned and punished and, like, exiled rarely happened. It was restorative justice. It was the, the person taking full ownership of what they've done. And then people saying, okay, well, here's how you can make it up to the community. Because it's not just the victim that you've hurt. You've hurt that, that victim's family and the social circle. You've mm. upset the equilibrium of the community. Yeah. Um, so what can you do to, to restore that? And once you've done that, you come back in. And I think that's really important. Punishment, I don't think, changes people's attitudes. They just try to get sneakier about getting away with stuff. True. True. Okay, so... If there's one piece of uh, advice you give to any kind of creative artist or anything like that, is there any piece of advice? Huh, I think we've covered a lot of I it. Because you did kind of say some pretty good stuff. Uh, I think it's about uh, knowing that you're worth, mm. knowing your worth, knowing that you're valued, knowing that you will mess up, especially if you're looking at doing kind of a mishmash of art and activism yeah right where where is your inspiration coming from you know who taught you those stories I think there's there's understanding where you are in the fabric of society because how you frame your artwork and how it's going to be received is dependent on that mm-hmm. so do you want to be like some asshole who makes dream catchers and sells them as like dream webs <laughs> Uh. Right? Or do you want to be somebody who, like, collaborates and works with community or who recognizes their privilege, who tries to be really um, humble and and own their humility? So I think knowing where you are and where you come from is a really important part of the art process. This whole, like, oh, art's art for the sake of art. Art is free range. I can do whatever I want. I'm an artist. And art shouldn't be beholden to these little structures and rubrics. I think that's a sloppy argument for people who don't want to be held accountable for where they came from. Bingo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know what? You're right. Everyone, there's there's not one person who is beyond reproach. And once you release something, you're you're open to criticism. And, yep. And, and it does say a lot about where you are, who you are, where you come from. Yeah. Uh, but how you react to that criticism and, and what you put out. Like, could you imagine me, like, releasing a children's book about Africville? Right, it would be very... That, like, it doesn't matter how well-intentioned, it doesn't matter how beautiful the prose are, how yeah. incredible the illustrations. If I didn't talk to a single community member, if yeah. I didn't, like, identify who I was and where I was coming from yeah. and all of this sort of stuff, it would just be, like, a little weird. I yeah. think. 
right? And weird yeah. is, is being gentle. It's being gentle. Yeah, right? you're absolutely right. Right? Because you yeah. imagine, like, people from that community, survivors or, like, you know, descendants of those folks saying, like, who the hell does she think she is? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so knowing where you, who you are and where you come from and where you're situated, I think, is very important as an artist. Man. I didn't expect to have this kind of awakening, <laughs> but I really appreciate you for it. I'm glad, like, this was something that I was nervous about bringing up, mm-hmm. um, but I'm glad I did. Absolutely. So. I try to, like, uh, I get told often that it's like, who, how, who, I think it was Lindsay, uh, Lindsay uh, Glowed Raining Bird, she wrote about me when I became public, uh, Poet Laureate, and she says something along the lines of, like, Rebecca will cut you down with one hand, but waiting for you is her other hand to help you back up. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought that, that was some of the most incredible writing about me and it was such a flattering thing but and I tried to it's accurate I, well I tried to, to to stand up to that and I got a hold like holding myself accountable I, always, I haven't always been great at that either like it's been mm-hmm. something that I would like to be better at so mm-hmm. if I'm going to do it I need to hold myself to that same standard right 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 yeah. right yeah and I, I try to do that too in terms of when I am releasing politically charged things, I, I hate that word, but like, you know, critical things, mm-hmm. I try to make it clear that I'm not perfect. Like, there's somebody that thinks I'm an asshole. I mean, I'm gonna come home and I'm gonna say something to my wife, she's gonna be pissed off at me. It's just, uh, yeah. it's just a reality. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I know there are people who don't agree with me in a lot of my views. I know there are people who don't agree with me in like my methods, and that's okay. Yeah. I don't wish them ill, I don't want them. Like yeah, it's, you hold a different belief system, and that's okay. It's not like like let's not start getting into the like oh we're all different and we can all get along because that completely erases systems of power and histories of oppression. Yeah. But I think that it's important for people to have disagreements. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any like you meant we, we talked about your book, but do you have anything else that's big that's kind of brewing? I am doing a show with Symphony Nova Scotia in November. So um, I worked with a composer in Ontario. Her name is Laura Segroy. And we worked on a show that is uh, three movements of music. She composed three pieces. And I wrote poetry that matches the moods of those pieces to tell the story of the colonization of Canada. And I'll be performing that with with the orchestra um, in November. That's cool. That's that. I would love to see that. Um, Where can people find you online, and how can they find your book? They can find me on Twitter, either talking about my dogs or talking about colonialism. (laughs) That's about it, Uh, and various other derivatives of all of the feminisms and the activisms and all of that sort of stuff. Um, And it's uh, Becca Leet, so B E C C A L E A T. And that is the same on Instagram. Okay, I'll add links in the show notes. But one thing I forgot to talk about was your art helped get rid of Cornwallis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so how did that feel? Uh, I, I don't know if I'm like... I have issues with praise or I genuinely don't believe that it was just because of me. Well, um, you know. I think that it's really important to acknowledge all the hard work that, like, Dan Paul put into talking about Cornwallis and really bringing him forward. John Tattree. Tattree had a great book called The Violent Birth of Halifax talking about Edward Cornwallis. You know, I just kind of 
I just kind of sung us home, if you will, with that poem in in, <laughs> sit in, in City Hall, um, where I had an opportunity. It was part of the Poet Laureate thing. You have to do performances in council. Um, and so I said, all right, here we go. Like, let's do this. And I was calling uh, into account current sitting councillors in what they had said. So some of the words that they had said to justify not having a discussion around Cornwallis in the previous year's votes, I had woven into the poem. So I had direct quotes from sitting councillors that I kind of put back at, to, at them. And essentially it was like, do you hear how ridiculous you sound in your justifications, right? And part of it was, a big part of it was um, not to, to necessarily take down Cornwallis, but for the... Um, the the council people to to see our humanity. I want you to see me as a human being, and then tell me no. Because I don't think they saw that. I think they saw it as like a story in history. They didn't see the humanity of the people who were asking for its removal, and uh, and that I had the opportunity to do that. Was that uncomfortable? Oh, very uncomfortable. Okay. Um, I might seem all tough and badass, but I'm a very soft person. Mm-hmm. Cry easily. I'm getting better at having uh, difficult conversations. The job that I have now helps. Um, but I was very uncomfortable. I think I said you can find it, I think, on YouTube. Uh, some of the counselors filmed it on their phone and put it up on YouTube. And I think I said at one point in time, I'm like, I'm very sweaty. <laughs> and, and yeah, and oh, the kind of the backlash that came out of that. It's great that the statue came down, but like um, Frank Magazine did this like two-page poem response where they kind of insinuated some pretty like awful things. They talked about my called me a fair Micmac princess and an Indian maiden and used my wiles on the mare and all this sort of stuff. And that was some of the backlash that I got. But, and they drew this awful caricature of me, you know. Um, But at the end of the day, um, there are a bunch of hateful writers who don't sign their names to the articles that they put out into public and I got the stash taken down. So, (laughs) haha. Um, yeah, and, uh, and I'm sure, I don't know, they have trolls everywhere, and if they hear this, I'm sure they'll, they'll make a big spiel about it, but one of their favorite things to do is take screen caps of my tweets and then put it on their account and make fun of me for it. <sighs> yeah, well, this, the shirt that I mentioned got covered in, in Frank. I didn't know how to feel about that. Uh, I think that they're a hateful group of people who are fighting for a world that is changing. Um, and, and they're going to be left behind. And, yeah, and they're, they're terrified. I, I get the sense that they're just so scared. Of, I so I did when I was in PEI, uh, or on PEI. I don't even know how to do that. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to say either. You say on Bermuda, in Bermuda. I say in Bermuda. Oh, there you go. And, and you we, were in PEI then. Yeah, exactly. So I'm like, I'm from a, a little island too. <laughs> I say in. Uh, and uh, so the um, I go there. Not too many people look like me on the campground <laughs> <laughs> or my family, but I stand out particularly. And um, it it's just it got to a point. I'm used to people kind of staring at me, but it was such a big campground. It was like people were just like staring hard, and I look back mm. and I make eye contact, and, I, and I, I try to put them at ease by saying hi and smile, and then they still give you this. 
the stare. Mm-hmm. And then they, like, so I was wearing all my political t-shirts. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Yeah. So, <laughs> Who is this guy? <laughs> right. I was like, it, it just put me in a mood because it was like, these are all of those same people who are just uncomfortable with the change that is inevitable. With the change, and I think they're, they, I think sometimes these people get, listen to me, these people, <laughs> I feel like sometimes people um, get uncomfortable when who they are gets kind of, um, like, um, really strongly identified. You are not like me. I am not like you. Because if you're, if you're a white person and you're surrounded by white people and all you do is hang out with white people, you don't feel different. And then all of a sudden you're seeing somebody that's not like you and it might kind of bring that to the forefront and that's uncomfortable. Yeah. So, like, you know, I was doing a diversity training course and one of the people were talking about accents because my colleague who co-facilitates with me, uh, she's from St. Lucia, so she has a really thick St. Lucian accent. And this gentleman said, you know, like, well, I like accents. I think, like, your accent is quite lovely. And I said, keep in mind, she doesn't have an accent where she's from. We have accents, right? So don't uh, be careful not to other or exotify, right? And there are certain accents that get held up as being, like, more beautiful and better, whether they be a Spanish accent or an English accent or something like that. But if somebody has a Mandarin accent or if somebody has um, a Filipino accent or if somebody has, like a different kind of accent that you don't romanticize as being sexy or desirable or cool or or something, then all of a sudden saying somebody has an accent is no longer a, something to be proud of. It's something to be ashamed of. Yeah, I'm not ashamed of where my accent came from, but it got to the point where I got so tired of people talking about it, making a big deal about it. It just got weaker and weaker over the years, and I'm, like, I'm almost embarrassed about how I sound right now. Like. We had this conversation today. So I work with a lot of folks from the Caribbean. I work with another woman from uh, Trinidad and Tobago. And she says that she does the same thing. She lessens her accent yeah. when she's in places. But she says when she gets emotional or when she gets angry, she goes like, the, she's out, like the yeah. Trinidadian accent, it comes out. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and she talked about how she, in, there are situations where she doesn't know what accent she should speak in. Do I lessen oh. my accent? Do I like speak it right? And yeah. and and so that and that's how that whole question of accents kind of happened because there's another woman who works and she's from the UK, so she has a British accent and everyone's like, oh, I love British accents. Everything sounds so smart coming out of a British accent and that sort of thing. And when we think about the history of that, like, oh, the sun never set on the British Empire. Like that accent was like put into us as like power and as being superior and as being better and you know all that sort of stuff and so we had a fabulous conversation about accents right I don't have a res accent so because of that people listen to me better because I don't sound I sound more educated or I sound like you're so articulate right right? it's like you're so well spoken you know these weird like backhanded compliments that come from a good place their intentions are good but but the impact and where they're rooted realize it's not it's actually an insult yeah you're not realizing that you know you're saying that the rest of my people aren't as great right you're singling me out as being um more palatable or you know more worth your understanding yeah yeah it's gone so there's like a lot of this is the work that i do yeah and you're right too (laughs) the the, like yeah because you know me being from away and coming from a a culture where my people look like me are the dominant culture you know when someone came in from canada or the states and they had that accent that you guys not you specifically but Canadians and Americans, they don't have an accent. Oh, you got an accident. Yeah. You have an accent. 
Well, that was what my colleague from St. Lucia says. She said when she first moved here to, to Canada from St. Lucia, she said that uh, she goes in St. Lucia. I, I, we grew up. We didn't have racism because everybody was black. She's like, but we had classism. Oh yeah. Classism so she's like, I saw. Real. She's like, I saw classism everywhere. Yeah. But when I went to Walmart and I was asked to open my bag so someone could look in, she said that wasn't racism. That was store policy. And then when she went with one of her friends who's African Nova Scotian, and she got upset and said, Danielle, why aren't you upset? That person was racist. And she's like, no, it's a store policy. They're checking your bag. And she said, why don't you come back to Walmart and watch for a little while whose bags they asked to check? And you're going to start to realize that it's because you're black. And that's why they're checking your bag. And, and she said, like, it was such an eye-opening experience because she saw instances of classism everywhere because that's how she was conditioned. Mm-hmm. But she had to learn what, like, North American racism was like because she didn't grow up in it. And it's a very, it's such an interesting, uh, and like that was an eye-opening experience for me because I didn't, I didn't think that. I was like, oh, she's a black woman, she must know what racism is. Yeah. And she's like, nope, I had to learn about it. And she goes, yeah. I wish I hadn't. For them, there's such a dominant culture there, like it wouldn't. For me, Bermuda is like 40% black, 60% white, mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. So we had that similar dynamic where you could see it. In a more direct way, yeah. But we were dominant socially, but like white people controlled the money and mm. the society, mm-hmm. so you still felt the oppression from the top. You just like in a social situation, you were always just gonna, yeah. So it was kind of it was kind of weird, like in that way. But yeah, so it just like it was just such a great conversation. Yeah, and it's cool. That's one of the things that we talk about so much is that like you. You and your worldview is this teeny tiny little speck. Like there's so much outside yeah. of your bubble. Yeah. Um, so you know, be mindful of that. Yes. Well, on that note, thank yes. you very much. Sorry no problem. I took so much of your time. That's okay. Um, thank you for coming on our page, me. No problem. Thank you for having me. I love to talk about this sort of stuff. Thank you so much for listening to the Art Page Me podcast. Thank you to Lange Beats for the theme music. If you got anything out of this show, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. The more you do this, the more reach the podcast gets, and the more artists I can help learn to make a living at what they love. If you want to know more about what I do, hit me up at rpaysme.com or at rpaysme on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest. See y'all next time.